Turn with me, if you would, to Job chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 this morning. It's, in, it's page 417. If you're using the Bible, that might be under the seat in front of you. Job chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. It was Christmas Eve of this past year. Most people were getting ready for family gatherings, maybe last-minute wrapping presents, getting ready for candlelight services, um, getting their house ready for a lot of family that evening or the following day. One family in particular was a little different when a parent checked their phone or was scrolling Facebook, not exactly sure how it happened, or, or got an email that down the street was a once-in-a-lifetime event waiting to be seen. A northern lapwing was sitting in a field while birders from hours away brought their scopes, cameras, $1,000 Swarovski optics, you name it, binoculars, to view this bird that had never been seen in the area, probably on the East Coast or North America. It doesn't belong here. You see, this bird is a bird from Europe, which leaves us with so many questions. How did it get lost? Did it travel on some shipping container? Was it migrating and got confused somehow? Why is it sitting in a field in Salem County, of all places? As you might have guessed, that family was ours, of course, and somebody got a notification on their phone and we just had to go see this bird. And if you want to, after the service, I'm sure our resident in-house ornithologist will show you his pictures or maybe he has his bird book with him and he can show you what this bird looks like. But while I was viewing this bird through my binoculars, I was left with so many questions, you know, what is this bird thinking? Why is it here? Does it even know how to find its way home? What's it looking for? Is it looking for food? Is it looking for some path, like, you know, some weather front to get itself back to Europe? I'm used to seeing sparrows, cardinals, blue jays, vultures, like the thousands of turkey vultures we see over our head every day. But in front of my eyes with my binoculars, I'm just standing here looking at this bird. Like, why is it in this field? How did this bird lose its way? How did it get itself in maybe so much danger, venturing from its normal routine? And did it have, like, did its compass get broken? Did it think it was flying east and instead it ended up west in Salem County? Well, this morning in our text, it will show us someone who's very out of place in his life. In an instant, our central figure, Job, is in a new land, not a physical new land. He's in the land of unparalleled suffering, almost losing his way. What keeps him from giving up, from finding his way while he is so out of place? I believe that is his amazing faith in God. That's the title of my sermon this morning, The Faith of Job. 
And my three points this morning are, if you're taking notes, Job's faith is amazing. The second point is Job's faith is imperfect. And the third point this morning is Job's faith is vindicated. And so read with me, if you would, in Job chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 this morning. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, and although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? Shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, this morning for the text before us. And I pray, as has already shared, Lord, that we would be reminded of the good news of the gospel. But more importantly, while we may find ourselves in the midst of suffering this morning, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our faith and bring us and draw us closer to you. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our, our text before us this morning sets the foundation for the book of Job. And as you know, we're going to be um, speaking and find, kind of wading our way through the book of Job here this summer for a few weeks as we've already started last week. But while Job is in his suffering, we get an extensive view of his plight and his shaken faith. But we also see two contrasting views of Job, that at times they seem to be completely at odds with each other. On the one hand, we see an, imp- we see an impatient and tormented man. And on the other hand, we see a man who is patient who never complains, but more importantly, as we see in our text, a man who never sins. Can these two overlap or merge together, or do we have to hold them in contrasting views because they do seem at odds many times throughout this book? And I would argue this morning that this is the true picture of the faith of Job. I hope to show you this morning that from Job we need to be reminded that there will be times in our lives when we will experience and pain and suffering, and we may lose our way. But Job serves as an example of us to how to suffer 
and how to struggle with our emotions and our suffering that we will face in our lives. To see that we're going to just have to jump around just a little bit, just to a few different texts as we kind of leave chapter 2 here for a minute. But in chapter 2, we just read, Job does not know, of course, what we know, and we see the second dialogue between God and Satan here, and some commentators call it the second test, and in fact, that might be maybe one of the headings in your Bible this morning. But it's a heavenly court and a heavenly trial, so to speak, and we know that this realm remains hidden from Job. Satan thinks that Job has faith in the things that God has given him, and he attempts to incite God against Job a second time, but we know that Job has done nothing wrong. He had all of his possessions and all of his health, and he was an honorable man. And if you look in your text in verse 4, you see that Satan uses a strange phrase or a strange metaphor that when you heard me read it, it might have struck you as odd. He says, skin for skin. The devil puts a threat out before God. One commentator explains that this phrase here that Satan uses is a parody of a reverent praise. You see, Satan was making fun of what Job said in chapter 1, verse 21. Job believed, or Satan believed that Job still had what we can call his health insurance. He still has his health, and he's still going to hold on to God. But if you take that from him, God, there's no doubt that he will curse you. That's what Satan believes. One preacher said, he has lost everything that he has in chapter 1. In chapter 2, he's about to lose everything he is. If Job loses his health, he will curse God. We no longer have a reason to worship God. And we want to remember that th- this morning that this is a divinely permitted and divinely limited attack on Job's body. Satan is permitted to own and allowed to only go as far as God allows. And Satan is directed to safeguard Job's life. And in my first point here, that Job's faith is amazing, how do we see that? What does that have to do with Job's faith, that he's going to lose his health? Well, real briefly, why don't you turn with me to chapter 19 of Job. This chapter features one of the darkest points in the book, perhaps, and there are many. But in true Job fashion, it also features one of the most theologically rich verses in the book that we'll see later. So Job chapter 19, verse 1 It reads, How long will you torment me and break me into pieces with words? That sounds pretty bleak, doesn't it? It Sounds pretty dark. Have you felt this way before? Have you felt in conversation with somebody that they maybe are accusing you of something you haven't done wrong? This is one of the most godly people in all of Scripture, and he's uttering these words. It sounds like the conversation that he's having with, you know, he has friends in the book that we hear from, and he's having a conversation with one of his friends. Sounds like it's not going very well, is it? How long will you torment me and break me into pieces with words? You see, one of his friends is reminding him, and sometimes they constantly belittle him, but if he had truly sinned against God and this punishment was returned in the form of intense suffering, That was Job's problem. That was not his friend's. So this is a truly dark section of the book. But I want to direct your attention to something a little bit further down in verse 23. 
And we find there, oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Whom shall I see for myself? And my eyes shall behold, and not another, my heart faints within me. Well, now that sounds pretty hopeful, doesn't it? He was maligned by his friends, his wife, that we'll see in a minute here. And yet, as one commentator states in this section, this is a magnificent burst of faith. He just said a couple minutes ago, how long are you going to torment me with words? And now he's saying, my Redeemer, I know my Redeemer lives. I want you to know this morning that the validity of Job's faith, Job's amazing faith, was firmly planted on his Redeemer. And so let us consider this morning, it's just not an absent faith. He puts his faith in God, Yahweh. The very Redeemer here, he clearly mentions in verse 25. Not only does this Redeemer live, he recognizes that this Redeemer is sovereign, which means that he is in control and directing his life, and he allowed this affliction to come upon him. You don't have to turn there, but if you want to write and read later, Job 9, he says of this Redeemer, He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? Who removes mountains? And they know it not. When he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble? You see, Job knows that his Redeemer is alive and active in his life, even through his suffering. And the word, when you see Redeemer here in this, in, back in 19, when you see this word Redeemer, it could be translated as avenger, guarantor, or vindicator. He seems to be thinking that not only is this Redeemer alive, but his Redeemer will come. And he also knows that in this book, as you see, if you, if you read the book of Job, you know that Job sometimes feels that God is completely against him. But Job is reminded that only God can vindicate his innocence. And so yet while he's struggling with this newfound suffering and this lack of understanding of its true origins, he holds fast to his faith in God. He does not give in to Satan's challenges and taunts that Satan uttered, of course, in the heavenly courts that Job can't see or know. Job remains true to his amazing faith, and that's where our text guides us this morning. So if you happen to keep your finger in chapter 2, turn back there for a minute, because we want to consider for a minute, as we're still in our first point, Job's amazing faith, we ought to consider the significance of the only appearance of Job's wife in the whole book. So turn back there to Job chapter 2. She was, of course, also suffering in similar ways as Job, she lost her possessions. She lost her children, just like Job. However, she gives in to the temptation to curse God and that Satan promised what Job would do. In many ways, this parallels somehow in the Garden of Eden and this dialogue between a husband and wife, and now when she tries to convince him to abandon his integrity and curse God, we read here in the text that he does not call her any names, but describes her as one of 
the foolish women. Why would Job respond in that fashion? Why would he do that? So Scripture tells us she does not know uh, what is exactly happening in the courts of heaven. And Job specifically tells, or he is told by his wife to curse God, which is evil counsel. So Job needed the exact opposite of what his wife is giving him here. In this very moment, he needed comfort. He's in the midst of physical suffering. She was providing him bitterness towards God. It's safe to assume that she walked with godly women, as Job probably walked with godly men, if, you, if we know about his reputation. And in a way, Job was reminding her that this counsel that she was giving him was not from the company that she usually keeps. It was truly a mark of restraint from a man who is incredibly weakened by intense suffering. In remarkable confidence in the provisions of God, he manages to teach his wife. And if you look in your text, he says, Shall we receive good from God? Shall we not also receive evil? It's in a lot of ways similar to what we see in chapter 1 where he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. That's what we see in chapter 1, right? And then we see what he says here in chapter 2. So imperfect as Job's faith was, it was severely put to the test. But his faith, his amazing faith, is manifested in his dialogue here with his wife. And what he also says later on in the book, as we just said, when Satan struck Job with this terrible disease, we see his, we see, uh, his faith and his, or his wife's faith was not as strong in her faith as Job was. Job's faith was strong, we have seen, and it's amazing through this trial, firmly planted on the goodness of God. But this disease... His physical suffering was like no other. And it's going to test one of the greatest men in all of Scripture. So our first point, we see that Job's faith in God is amazing. Let's now consider the results of his imperfect faith while being tested. You see, Job's faith is imperfect, is my second point here. And Job experiences a ravaging pain. His affliction was a horrible disease. See, our text specifically tells us that these painful boils are bound to affect anyone who's suffering. But Job is suffering without any explanation, anything at all. You or I would want an explanation for why something is coming upon you. If you're in a relationship as Job is and your spouse is suffering, you would want to know why. Why is this brought upon our family? Why is this brought upon you? You would want an explanation, right? If somebody you know has a mistaken judgment, they get an accident, they suffer a tragedy, you would want to know why. You might be saying to yourself, why me? Why now? Why is this happening? Look, at, look in our text in Job 2, verses 7 through 8. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. 
And he took a broken piece of pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in his ashes. This illness was so pervasive, it covered him from head to toe. The word here used is similar to in the Hebrew that we might see when the Bible says that there's a plague happening. Some scholars believe it might have been something similar to smallpox, but without dwelling specifically on his afflictions this morning and how it's translated into his suffering, Satan struck him with sores, degenerative facial skin, loss of appetite, itching, depression, loss of, ap- loss of strength, worms in his sores, difficulty breathing, running sores, darkness under his eyes, loss of weight, continual pain, blackened skin, peeling skin, and fever. Everything you can imagine. Suffering was so acute, as our text tells us, that he took a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself to try and get some relief while he sat in ashes. Now, missionaries, they've kind of documented some illnesses that we really don't see here, but we see in other parts of the world, say that individuals suffering from some types of illnesses like this would sit outside the city and would, in fact, sit in these ashes outside the city to help do something to alleviate the pain. And so it's a tragic irony when you see that Job was a privileged man, as we heard last week, and he, had a, he was a man with stature in the community. Now he's moved from judging and sitting in the courts, perhaps, to now living in the city amongst the beggars and those suffering outside, which is where his friends find him. This is the first appearance, and we didn't read it this morning, and we're going to see a little bit more about his friends, I think, in the coming weeks. Without getting too much into him, of course, his friends hear of his suffering, and they come. We only read that they hear this turmoil, and they immediately came to him, but some commentators say that during this time, of course, Job's emotions and his physical strength are completely stretched to his breaking point. His suffering is so relenting His disease afflicts him and actually changes how he looks. And it might be easy to miss if you want to read a little bit more in Job later. In verse 13 it says that when his friends came, they sat with him seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. I believe his friends were truly unprepared for what they saw and how they found him. They were, so, they were so completely unprepared that when they saw him from a distance, they realized how completely unrecognizable he was. They didn't even know it was their friend Job because his face had so completely changed. One commentator says it best when he says, their stunned, week-long silence was like mourning for the dead. I think that statement captures the end of the narrative here, and we know that chapters 1 and 2 of Job are the reasons for his suffering, and the rest of the book describes for us how Job and his friends grapple with why he is suffering, but his friends didn't immediately understand, so they sat with him for a week and didn't say a word. They offered little help to him, A word of healing and comfort from a friend would have probably greatly helped in that moment, and I wouldn't want to put myself in the situation to know that I would have known what to do or do something right. But instead, their silence is broken by a cry of torment. In chapter 3, 
by a distraught Job wishing he was never born. Wishing he was never born. So you can see how his amazing faith was completely shaken in this moment because his life was completely upended. It was no longer a picture of a wonderful life. In chapter 1, his possessions were completely gone. His body now ravaged by disease, and Job lost all the blessings in his life because he was once revered in society, and now he was ostracized. We can see the cause of his suffering, but he doesn't know that he's a part of, as I said, this cosmic trial, this cosmic court. And so Job is is dealing with and grappling with what we could probably call an unwillingness to bow or acquiesce to the sovereign providences of God. And so, of course, Job has now and is now contending with what God is doing in his life because he felt that he was suffering because he had done nothing wrong. But what he did not know was because he was suffering because of his righteous life. And so the presence and counsel of his friends and the physical suffering that he's experiencing now have led him to an incredibly dark valley in his life. Let's see that dark valley and turn with me, if you would, to Job 23. Briefly, this is a valley in a valley moment in Job's faith. And as you turn there, I want to ask you, have you ever had the uh, distinct honor, of course, to appear in a courtroom? And maybe you have not been so fortunate as me. Uh, in fact, a couple months ago, I had the distinct honor of serving on a federal jury. And you're like, oh, that sounds terrible. I had the time of my life. I was excited. You probably get that jury notice, and you're like, no, no, nah, please, please, I don't want to do this. I was excited, and my wife was not sure why, but I was. And in the courts, if you haven't been in a courtroom before, I'll describe to you that there's, you know, there's a lot of you know, pomp and circumstance, and the, the room is decorated, and there's drapes, and there's, there's the place for the gallery for the public to sit. There's the jury. There's the judge. There's the defense, and there's the prosecutor. There's a lot of individuals that play an important role in a court. And the typical standard courtroom might, might appear formal and imposing because there's a lot of reasons why, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of process to how the courts work. And it helps to demonstrate to the citizens who might never be in a courtroom to kind of understand the process. Well, if everybody's all seated and the jury's seated and everybody's all ready to go to have court, and they're sitting and waiting waiting for something to happen, waiting for the bailiff or the sheriff to say, all rise. And you sit up and you wait for somebody to come and preside over the court. What happens if the judge never comes? What happens if you want to plead your case before the judge and you're ready, you have everything all prepared, ready to go, and the judge never comes? What would a court be like? without the judge. Well, we see here in Job chapter 23, verses 8 and 9, the judge does not appear 
in his court. No one will hear the case. Job feels this way. He feels he's all alone in a courtroom by himself. In Job 23, verse 8, he says, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. He knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than the portion of food. But he is unchangeable. But who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does, for he will complete what he appoints for me. Many such things are in his mind. Therefore, I am terrified at his presence. When I consider him, I am in dread of him. But God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness covers my face. The character of God, I want to remind you this morning, is different from that of man. As we saw last week, why didn't God just pull back the curtain? Would that, solve, would that solve Job's questions about his present suffering if he actually sees why this is happening? He's trying to get an answer here in what we just read. He's trying to get the judge in front of him to explain why. Some skeptics, and maybe that's you this morning, state that, you know, I would believe in God if he just regrew somebody's amputated arm in front of me. Or maybe if I got an email from God or read it in a book that God personally wrote me a letter. You see, God has revealed himself to us in his word. And demanding God's presence or asking for his presence in his courtroom is an exercise that presumes that you are on the moral high ground and are calling God into question. God is not the one whose integrity is in question, and he is not the suspect that we demand proof of to satisfy our own desires. You cannot, as Job was, you know, perfectly questioning God to appear in his courtroom. But perhaps you do feel alone this morning. Perhaps you do feel alone in a courtroom or on trial before God as Job does. But maybe you aren't suffering on the outside. Maybe you don't have sores all over your skin. Maybe you are suffering on the inside. Maybe you are hiding from others and you don't want to invite others into your suffering to ask for help or encouragement. Perhaps your faith is imperfect and shaken, weakening as the days go by. You see, God gives us the means of grace to encourage us in our walk with Him. And as our pastor reminds us weekly, the heavenly meal of the Lord's Supper is perhaps one of the most important. That is a significant aspect of our faith. And the God who created and redeemed us has given us that to taste and to remind us of our Savior's death on the cross for you and me. So the question this morning for us is to Ask, will you remember, will you remember where your faith comes from? We see in the text this morning that Job also just briefly says in verse 12 that he says, I have not departed from the commandments of your lips. And so in the silence of God in this very moment, Job is remembering that 
his faith is strong. And he's being reminded of where he should go. The commandments of God are a calling in life, no matter what they may bring. You see, Job is terrified of the prospects of giving himself over to his sovereign God and what he has appointed for his life. As quiet and as inaccessible as Job is in this very moment. So his faith is imperfect, but lastly this morning we see that Job's faith is vindicated. So we read this morning that Job has demonstrated amazing faith, but it's also imperfect through his suffering. But lastly, I wanted to show you how his faith is vindicated. And to see that, skip all the way to the end of the book in chapter 42. Chapter 42 Job gives us a beautiful look into how this takes place as we close. You see, Job utters a reply to God, which is the complete opposite of his complaints in chapter 3. Job admits the rebellious nature of his complaining toward God, but it's not an admission of sin before his suffering. But keep in mind, and this is important, this admission of Job is, bef- is while he is still deep in his suffering. While he is still deep in his suffering. He did not, and he has not recovered from his disease at all. In our lives, we will have to recommit ourselves to God at those times when st- we are still in the throes of doubt and complete despair. But Job here in this text demonstrates a commitment to his Lord, not having received either an explanation of the mystery of the past or a promise for the future. And it's at this point that Job makes the final blow to his adversary, to Satan, proving him completely wrong and proving God's redemptive power. Now what does he say in verse 42 and verse 3? Job admits this. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I do not understand. Speaking here from this pulpit this morning is is humbling and a mystery to me as well. But I'm reminded, as what Job has just uttered here this morning, that sometimes maybe you're like me, uttering what I do not understand It takes a lifetime to fully grasp the doctrines of grace, the work of creation, but we have to remember and continually probe the depths of the gospel and realize that we are not the arbiters of what truly happens in this world. Do you need more of this spirit? Do you need what is one commentator says, a, a turning point to the external circumstances in our lives? See, the blessings in Job's life happened after his sufferings. And we read this morning in chapter 23 that Job says, when he knows the way I take, when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. That's a future tense. You see, every chapter in this book, minus 29, has the word why in the book. That's 41 chapters. The word why comes specifically 29 times. This means that Job has far more questions in his life than answers, and maybe that is true for you in this room. 
Yet through Job's life, we see amazing snapshots of uh, the mouth of Job, of his amazing and imperfect faith. But what happens in verse 22, verse 10? God restored twice what Job had. Twice of what Job had. And I think that's a perfect picture of what we read in Ephesians when he says he restores his people more than they lost in the thick of their trials. In Ephesians 3.20, he does exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or think. But in also 1 Peter 1 Verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and the honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so maybe you are experiencing some things that seemingly come out of nowhere and you're least prepared for them. Voices might come telling you to curse God, reminding you that you deserve this suffering. You must have angered God. Maybe you feel all alone. It will challenge your faith. But the important task for a Christian is to remember your Savior Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. You know, last week in uh, chapter 1, as as, uh, Tim was reading for us, there's an interesting section that says that Job gets up every, every morning early to offer burnt offerings according to the number of them to his children. And that, I think that burnt offering points to Christ. And Job didn't know what he was doing or why, but knowing that he, there was a future redeemer. And so this morning, my friends, I want to encourage you to remember your Savior Jesus, who, because of what he did on the cross for us, God is pleased with his son Jesus. He is pleased with you as a Christian, and you will be vindicated. Let us pray. Father, thank you, Lord, this morning. For your word, I pray, Lord, that we have been strengthened by hearing and seeing what the suffering of Job has gone through. I pray, Lord, that we would draw strength this morning, remembering that we do have a Redeemer, our Son Jesus, your Son Jesus, and our Savior, Lord, who went to the cross for us. And we may be filled with many questions in life and maybe currently presently suffering. Perhaps our faith is shaken and we are filled with doubts. Lord, would you Encourage and lift up the brokenhearted. And humble those, Lord God, who need to be drawn closer to you. For we pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.